Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Now it needs a multiple cup holder, I think. Put it strapped to his waist or something. It's like drinking doubles. What's wrong with that, you know? People do it. Thrillingly bought a copy of the new issue of The Word on the Rue de Rivoli in Paris. No, which one? With Robert Wilde? A mere €10.50. Really? Nine pounds. A bargain. And there was one left. On the old on the old room, there's usually a bit of a, a, a queue outside. W, yeah, W. H. Smith, Rude Rivoli, Paris. Yeah, it's saying yeah. is the new issue. He got that quickly. Yeah, I was amazed. She texted me that, and you know, he just can't. I was amazed. Yeah. I thought there's a copy of Word. It must be an old one. I thought no, I haven't seen that cover before. Yeah. It's thrilling. Yeah. Yeah. Month it's away. Oh. Keep you amused on your holiday. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, with, with a column that you filed from holiday. With a column that I filed from, oh, from sitting by the pool. I didn't want to say that. No, you because I thought it might, me, yeah. it might uh, develop a bit of reader envy. Yeah. So I said I'm just off my holiday, but I actually sent it from my laptop by the pool. Well, it's a good job you haven't told anybody that on the podcast, isn't it? Because that would reflect... Well, they wouldn't, they they wouldn't remember. <laughs> we are recording. We're recording. Oh, it's right. the word podcast. Right. Barry McElhenney wearing shorts. Yes, relax, girls. He's married. Uh, <laughs> Mark, Should Mark see Allen. those knees. Mark Allen in long trues. Have you ever seen my knees? Oh, No, too, too big. I have like a chicken. <laughs> Do you know my favourite cyclist? <laughs> chicken Legs Rasmussen. Who is the guy who was done out? We're of, off. You know about chicken legs? <laughs> no, but chicken legs was the guy who in the Tour de France. Was, I can say this legally because he was, he was done for drugs. No, basically, so chicken legs fell off his bike and broke <laughs> broke his leg. Right, and they said, "Mate, you'll never be able to finish the Tour de France." Chicken legs, as they called him, because one of your pins has gone. He said, no, "I'll be fine." He, he, he squawked, and the next morning they were quite suspicious when chicken legs arrived. Right, having got himself out of the hospital, lashed himself back into the saddle with a sort of splint on his leg, and took off at about two hundred miles an hour. <laughs> at which point, even even you know, even a casual bystander scratched their heads and thought, "Are drugs involved?" And uh, anyway, he never finished. Who started? I've got, I've got legs. I've got legs like chicken legs, but without the drugs. Have you seen that film Belleville Rendezvous? Yes, I have. Exactly. Which yeah. where the cyclist. The animation was yeah. like this. Yeah. Works very hard to, to build yeah. up legs. <laughs> Bizarre <laughs> legs, aren't they? These are like two, these are like two milk bosses, you know, aren't they? 
You know, people always, there are certain films people always tell you, you know, you ought to see that, mm. and you never do, do you? Because it all sounds rather worthy. And animations come under that, that heading oh, yeah, for me. Yeah. And it was years before I took somebody's advice and watched Belleville Rendezvous. It was on a and Boxing Day. Brilliant. Do you remember two years ago? The whole nation saw it. I, I was on TV. Yeah, it was, it was, it was on, on Boxing Day. Absolutely so incredible. Good. And there's no soundtrack, is there? I mean, there's no, sorry, there's no, uh, no narrative. Am I thinking the right one? Yeah. No, no, there is a narrative. Yeah, it's about the guy who enters the Tour de France. I don't mean no narrative. I mean, See, I'm no, not a huge fan of animation. Do you oh, mean you dialogue? Dialogue is what I mean. Dialogue. Uh, okay, yeah, all right. Fine. Yeah, there's no... All right, okay, go on. I'm not a huge fan of animation. Not at all. Not at all. I don't even particularly enjoy The Simpsons. I don't like... Tom and Jerry? Not, not really. I'd prefer real life. <laughs> you prefer real life to Tom and Jerry. Yeah, I just this is I, fighting. I, you say that like cartoons are an option. This is insane. In real life. No, they are. I, I, I would not willingly sit through one. I don't like cartoons on the page. I'm not a big fan of animation. Have you never seen Finding Screen, though? Yeah, possibly with my kids, but it's not, not a massive fish, fan. Yeah. A fish that gets lost and it's got the voice of Ellen DeGeneres. Anyway, uh, while we're talking about films, I wanted to just. Uh, uh, my wife went to the cinema last night uh, to to see some Something one of those films that one's wife goes to see yeah, that you don't want to go and see yeah. yourself. It goes with the daughter and so forth. Um, they go to the Barnet Odeon or ABC, and they're in the queue uh, waiting for a ticket. And somebody uh, joined in the queue by somebody who's just come from the fish shop across the road, right? And is is proposing to take into the cinema a portion, a large portion of chips fish and supper. a meat pie, and meat pie. And her friend says to her, "You can't <coughs> eat take both of those." Yeah. Oh, I see. <laughs> Not at once. <laughs> says to her, "You can't take that in in there." And she said, "Oh, it's all right. I'll sneak it in." So, like, it's I, just, I wanted, like there's no fragrance coming. Absolutely. Out. Have you ever been in the cinema where anybody has attacked an actual hot supper <laughs> in the cinema? I've never been in a cinema with anybody eating a fish supper, which is what that... Or a well, pie I sat supper. next to a girl this morning coming up the Pentonville Road five minutes ago eating a sausage roll. And that made the bus very fragrant. I got on that bus and thought, somebody's eating a sausage roll. And I, I felt that in a bad way, Dave. Not an enthusiastic way. When you were at school... Not like, great, it's a big sausage roll party I've joined here. When you were at school, did they used to have a rule saying you couldn't eat in the streets? We used uh, to have one. Couldn't eat in school uniform. Couldn't be seen eating in school uniform. Nobody in the continent... it looks slow brown. Let it... They, let it... Let's go upside down, yeah. Nobody in the continent, where I've just been, segue, eats in the street. It's a very, it's a very so kind true. Of, it's a very British phenomenon. Nobody in the continent... And then they, they, I don't they sit down to eat. Don't they don't drink in the street. No, they <laughs> sit down, they, they don't pick carry a, a can of Cronenberg. <laughs> no. They're not knocking them back. Yeah. That's really true. Yeah, they just sit that, and eat that's and so true. So, you know, they um, keep an eye out for that. So next time you get to the cinema, will there be somebody, you know, actually spreading out a picnic Fish cloth <laughs> and, you know... Yeah. And, and, and Condiments. Chicken in aspic. It's gone mad, hasn't it? I mean, Asparagus you, rolled in brown Do you bread. eat anything? I'd join in if maybe, maybe a warm carrot. Peggy pizza delivery. <laughs> be nice, wouldn't it? When you go to the cinema, do you eat anything at all, Mark I do, actually, because do you I, really? I go to the cinema so rarely that I'm completely overcome by how exciting it is to be in the cinema. And I always have popcorn. And I'm always amazed, and this sounds like I've become a dad now, but I'm amazed how the popcorn at the Coca-Cola costs more money than the cinema. Did. And there's always one, only one size, which is massive. Yeah, massive. There's no smaller size than just massive. Yeah, you can, it's a, it's a, it's a bucket. It's I was spoiled, drop. actually, by my days uh, on Empire magazine, when you used to go to screenings, uh, obviously, so you'd see the film a couple of months early, and as you walked into the screening theatre at lunchtime, the barman would shout over to you, normal, normal Mr. McElhenney, and you'd just be handed a large glass of white wine, sit down, Enjoying the movie at lunchtime, 
Gasper on the go as well back in the day. Of course. Oh, a couple so of glasses of white wine. I was just rude. I go, no, I think, why, is, why are people not drinking and smoking all around me? <laughs> And why do they have a massive why do we have to pay? airline seat <laughs> with a hold-up your drink? You know. But you know why they you know why the popcorn costs more than the, t- the ticket because that is where the cinema is making its money. money. Oh, yeah. It's the only place. Very, very good All the other on. money is going back to Tom Cruise and yeah. Jeffrey Katzberg. Back front, yeah, and it's uh, that's that's why they're having to uh, swindle you, frankly, for uh, more popcorn than you want. Anyway, that's enough of the cinema. In other hot news this week, mm. did you follow? I sent you that. Did did you follow the the extraordinary story of the travails of Annie Leibovitz? It's just unbelievable. The uh, celebrity photographer. I read the entire original piece, which is in New York magazine. Yeah, yeah. Which has been sort of filleted by the papers. Just incredible. Has around three to four weeks with the sign of it to essentially pay off a fifteen million dollar loan. Otherwise, her properties oh, and her entire collection are going to be the world's most successful, seized. celebrated photographer. Extra- extra- you know, the person that they asked for by name to shoot the covers of Vanity Fair and so forth. Um, you know, taking the picture of every celebrity you've ever heard of. And there's a person probably more famous than a lot of the people she took pictures yeah. of. Oh, very much so, yeah. And, you know, just as Michael Jackson earned more money than everybody's ever heard of and then spent it, yeah. Annie Leibovitz proves that it's possible to get into negative equity no matter at what level of the market you're at. It's just when you read the detail of, of her expenditure, you know, the apartment overlooking the Seine, the notebooks. Oh, the story of the notebooks. That the was notebooks. my little... I sent, I sent out an email. I said, pick a detail out of this story. <laughs> the notebook, that you want to talk. And you've all picked the same detail as me. Go on, Barry. She would, uh, whenever her babe child was born, she wished to record um, every bowel Food movement. Food intake and bowel, bowel movement. Yeah, in and out. Um, but uh, unlike most people who would just jot this down on a bit of paper, she had to do it on a specially imported um, stock of Swedish high-grade notepaper. From um, Ordning and Reader. From Ordning and Reader, which whenever one book ran out, so after the first few nappies had been filled or whatever, she would have to restock at a cost of £800 per notebook because of the cost of the shipping well, because she from Sweden to New York. She, did she think that defecation would cease? <laughs> Which is an endless... Must, when you, you invest in, in, in your experience, very experienced notebook, you must think I'm going to have to buy several of these. You can't sit and moan about the cost of it. And would have these imported specially. Yeah. Shipping well, on a, no, on a... On a you fly well, one because, over on a because obviously, if you, if you live in the, the world of Annie Leibovitz, where you're taking the picture of Tom Cruise hanging off the Empire State Building, you know, for... for you know, Calvin Klein or whatever, and money is just no object. Yeah. If you want something, you just get it sent, don't you? Yeah. And and if bike you have, it round, bike it round. Even if it's from you know Mumbai, you get it biked yeah. round yeah. on a plane. How do you get things there in a rush? You effectively have them personally couriered yeah. at the cost of eight hundred dollars to have a notebook sent from Sweden in order to, just to record. <laughs> there was quite a sweet bit as well in which. Um, her mother was dying, so and her mother, as a child, had listened to the sound of the North yeah, Jersey Shore right. or whatever. So as her mother was dying, she then rented a beach house on the same shore so that her mother at night could hear the same surf. But, but, again, it's, but it's just the amount of money. It's just, yeah, I mean, the amount of money that that must cost just to do that. Bought a house for herself and Susan Sontag overlooking the Seine. It's just endless. I had I had so many thoughts about that piece because I'd read that piece already. I've got I've got two particular takes on it. One is a professional one, which I know Barry and, and, and Dave will, will also um, 
sympathise with it. it. It's working with photographers. Yeah. photographers. And if any of the photographers who I've worked with are listening, I don't mean in any way disparaging. <laughs> we've had our arguments about But, but to, to those who are not photographers are listening, the big problem in controlling photographers' expenditure is that it has to be seen to be in parallel with their creativity, if that makes any sense. Now, somebody who is producing not terribly challenging or, or evolutionary work has no right to suddenly say, I need to print up 300 work prints oh, yeah. for this thing. Because this is the thing, I mean, I'm sure we've all seen all her, uh, you know, fantastic um, pieces. She did the great picture of Whoopi Goldberg in, in the bath with yeah. milk. Mm-hmm. Lovely detail in the article. Where she, she said she's well off enough to have assistance to go out and buy enough milk to fill a bath and warm it. Well, warm and warm it. it. Because Whoopi Goldberg's not going to spend no, that day. No, absolutely right, you know. And the Demi Moore picture, pregnant. I mean, these are amazing, absolutely classic pictures that, that even if you didn't know she'd taken that picture, me reminding you of it now, you'd go, of course I know that picture, the pregnant woman on the cover of Vanity Fair. So, obviously, when she's still making waves and when her work is still kind of moving forward, it's very hard to know when you step in and say, sweetheart, you do not need to print up 500 work prints. I mean, this whole thing about being a perfectionist, which comes up in that article all the way through, is absolutely fascinating. And, of course, it's true of all the great photographers. Because yeah. all the great photographers feel, I have to get the right print. There's a bit where she is sent out to take a picture of a classic Coca-Cola bottle. Do you remember? Yeah. And in the article, she takes 500 Polaroids. And even then, doesn't feel she's got the great shot. And now, Didn't you know, Greg and Carter at one point try to intervene? <coughs> said in the piece, he got in touch with the printer. Because the, 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 the guy who'd printed up the prints had sent a bill for $50,000 on one shoot. Oh. Well, yeah, just, for, got just back. for prints to look at. Yeah, Carter got back on. to him and said, in future we will pay for no more than 10,000. The guy said, well, try telling her yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, another, there's another way round this, I think. I did an interview with Anton Corbine, who I'm sure uh, uh, the listeners will be very familiar with his work. He did all the great um, yeah, YouTube covers. And the the Tall Dutchman. I interviewed him for Word uh, just a couple of days ago, actually. And he was talking about one of the most valuable things in photography, he thinks, is having no time. Having no time at all. Yeah. And I remember a shoot that he did with uh, Clint Eastwood. In fact, we're going to run a picture of it in the next edition to, 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 to illustrate this point he's making. And he tried to get uh, uh, to interview, uh, sorry, to photograph Eastwood for years and understandably wasn't allowed anywhere near him. Why? Yeah. What was in it for Clint Eastwood? Eventually he understood how good Anton's stuff was and the, the value of being in one of his exhibitions or one of his books. And he said to him, you have 60 seconds to photograph me. When I say 60 seconds, I mean 60. There is somebody standing here. Stop watching. 60 seconds. And Anton said he'd been in lots of shoots like this and had deliberately put himself in situations like this, photographing Miles Davis, the great picture of Miles, Miles Davis' hands, photographing David Bowie when he was in The Elephant Man. And in each of those instances, in those, he only got five minutes. And this one was 60 seconds. And he said, if you have only 60 seconds, you only have one roll of film, in the days when people use film, so you've actually only got 24 exposures or whatever, and you have... It reduces the yeah. possibilities. And he says the most difficult thing is when you're shooting for a record company, the record company says, hey, look, Iron Maiden need a new... Take as long as you need. Long yeah. I tell you what, go to Prague, have a week, and if you have a week, you're just needlessly spending money and investing into something in the idea, the naive belief that spending money and investing will actually make it better. It won't. It will not make it better. Interviewing so, can be the same. I've had times where I've yeah. been told, you know, I've got literally 15 minutes... I had 15 minutes precisely with um, Harry Potter. <laughs> Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Daniel. If you're calling Harry, no wonder you have It does fantastically concentrate the mind. You think, these are the only questions I need to ask. And actually, at the end, 15 minutes was enough. 
because yeah. I got through all the questions that I wanted to ask. Yeah, so yeah. it does concentrate the mind. Whereas if they say, well, just hang out with them for a couple of days. Yeah. I don't know if you get that much more. You get more colour, but I don't know if you get that much more of a heart to it. But also, in the case of somebody like Annie Leibovitz, presumably um, it, it allows her... It, Unlimited amount of time to just uh, procrastinate, doesn't it? Yeah. You know what I mean. Yeah. I haven't got. I'm, I haven't got the perfect shot. So if I shot. spend a bit more time, I'll get the perfect shot. You won't. It's like making a record. It's the classic case of this, isn't it? Yeah. Completely. <laughs> it's like the conversation between Bruce Springsteen and his producers, which apparently are legendary. That Bruce Springsteen is also a perfectionist and simply does not know when his records are finished. He is not the person to be able to tell. He's far too close to it. Yeah. And when somebody sits, sits down and plays in the record through two speakers, uh, which is all it's going to be, not 17,000 speakers in a studio, and says, this is finished, that's the point when it's finished, because he can't make that decision. Yeah. You just constantly want to go in and tinker with it, but, get under the bonnet. But nowadays, and artists, and, and, and particularly successful artists, are obsessed with the idea of control. And it's seen yeah. as a good thing to have control. Oh, it's probably not. There's a terrific example of this, Fraser and I were talking about the other day. Somebody's posted on the Word website. Uh, the great Jim Dickinson, the uh, Memphis producer who died last week, somebody's posted a, a YouTube interview with him where he talks about uh, he produced a mixed big star third. Is it third? Yeah. It is. And he said, the only way this record got finished and mixed was I refused to let Alex Chilton anywhere near the mixing <laughs> yeah. process. He said, it, it wouldn't, he was, he's never forgiven me, but it wouldn't have got done had he been there. I allowed Chris Bell, who was also in the group, to be there, because yeah. he was fine. He, he could have sufficient distance on it. Alex Chilton was completely incapable of doing that. Yeah. And I think the same thing applies absolutely everywhere. You know, oh, yeah. My Jeff son last night goes to see the latest Quentin Tarantino film, which, of course, is rubbish. Rubbish. Uh, and, and, you know, one of the reasons it's rubbish is four times as long as all yeah. the earlier <laughs> oh, ones yeah, yeah. he made when, you know, he was under the gun. And somebody told him, that's your budget, and you've got to finish on that day. Yeah, the spelling of that film really annoys me. <laughs> Every time I oh, see it, I just want to correct well, I'm it. I'm Glorious. So you don't get the joke, man. Bastards. No. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I got, well, I've got one more point I want to make about this. It's about, about, it's about rich people, right? Oh. Now, I, I've. Oh, I, we know all about I, that. I've, yeah. only yeah. Met, I've only met two or three rich people in my Mark, life. you've met loads of rich people. No, no, what I mean, I mean got to know rich people. I mean, I've met loads of people because I have, you know, loads of rich people. I mean, I mean, actually got to know the way their, their minds work. And my feeling is if you inherit a load of money, if you're born with a load of money, then all your life what you're trying to do is kind of hang on to it and not make it diminish too quickly. Usually what happens is it reduces because people who are born with money have no idea how to make money. They were simply handed money. And what they usually do, <laughs> as far as I can see, is just watch it very gradually leak away. Well, so it's just downsize. You know, and that's fine, right? That's the kind of arist I'm talking about aristocratic, landed yeah, yeah, yeah. gentry. Sure, sure, sure. People who make money clearly have every idea how to make money because they started with very little and finished up with multi-million pounds. Now, in my experience, those guys have to constantly invest. What they can't do, and this is true of, you know, it's true of the Rolling Stones, that old cliche about the Rolling Stones. Why do the Rolling Stones keep going? Well, one of the reasons they keep going is they each have five houses. And in, if you are Keith Richards or Mick Jagger, in your own mind, Mick Jagger is a concept that has five countries, which he does actually. He's got a chateau in France, he's got a place in New York, he's got five houses. He doesn't want to wake up tomorrow and be a guy with only four houses. Yeah. Because keep even going. though it sounds fantastically superficial, it means in his own head that the concept of Mick Jagger is downsizing, it's reducing. And so Annie Leibovitz 
making that kind of money, and you can see that the gravy train is never going to be derailed because the creativity is there, the people are not managing to control their expenditure because they don't dare try and control their expenditure because they don't dare lose any leverage to another magazine. I totally understand all these things. And there are parallels in the music industry. The band that's having the hits, nobody gets and intervenes, do they? No. Then why why, why mend well, it if it's not broken? There's that bit where Cy Newhouse says to Graydon Carter, don't nickel and dime. Don't nickel and dime. <laughs> over <laughs> don't over and a dime. quarter of a million dollars within the contract. contract. Don't nickel and dime. I <laughs> but, but my experience these guys is they've always got to have projects. They've always got to have a house that's been developed there. They've got to have a studio they bought over there. They've got to have a, a business. Well, that was her downfall, wasn't there. it? The yes, yeah, so what happens is, in order to feel that they are expanding, they have to be constantly investing. And to be constantly investing, they're constantly overreaching and overextending uh, and making more and more precarious their own economic position. And what's happened with that? It's so easy for us to see here <laughs> say, isn't it? Collapsing. Well, Leibovich, if you're listening, <laughs> what you should have done. No, but what they do, she's then <laughs> built this thing up into a great big mushroom. And she's so true of so many business people, isn't it? Mm. And at one point, something will snap and something starts to under The house of cards so, starts And the house of cards starts to come down. And it's just, I, I've seen, I'm, you know, I've seen this happen. No, but you know, as you remember years ago, I interviewed Eric Clapton. This was not long after the tragic death of his son. Mm. Uh, and he'd, he'd gone off the rails. He told me he'd gone off the rails and he'd had his first nearly a stand-up fight with Roger Forrester, who's, his, who's been oh, yeah, manager remember, for yeah. years. Yeah. And the reason... He had the fight. Was that Eric Clapton went and bought a very expensive house in London, and then, like a week later, saw a very expensive house in Surrey or something, and bought that as well. <laughs> Roger Forrester said, "Just to make himself a You can't do that. It doesn't matter who you are. You know what I mean? You are out of control." But you're doing it because you feel you have to, as Mark yeah, says, yeah, you, have yeah. to have a project. But also, do you think it's because with these people? Very often they come from quite small time backgrounds. Yeah, you know, yeah. their parents and so forth didn't have a lot of money. You know, money was probably quite tight when they were growing up. Yeah, growing up. Yeah. Eric Clapton, like this, all these big Keith Richards, they're all from this kind of background. And so when you suddenly have an absolutely massive fortune, you sort of want to keep adding to it, don't you? It's the fear of it going away as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, and also just, just uh, obvious, visible expenditure. I've interviewed Rod Stewart about three or four times. And Rod Stewart is, is, is a completely working-class guy. I mean, he was, I was either going to be a footballer or he was going to be a rock star. But both of those were means of getting out of a yeah. very, very modest uh, background and getting into something different. And I can remember him complaining to me about buying his mum presents. And he'd say, I said, yeah, I'll see old mum, you know, what she wanted for her birthday. She said, well, what a bottle of perfume, a bottle of Charlie. And Charlie at the time was it's a bad, very down market. <laughs> yeah, Rod could probably get that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> a bottle of Charlie, yeah. But it was a very down market brand. And, uh, and he wouldn't buy it for her because it wasn't expensive. So what he actually bought it was, at one point he bought her a Bentley, which she never drove or didn't know how to drive and didn't want. At another point he bought her a fur coat. I mean, I know these are absolutely unbelievable cliches. This is in the 1970s we're talking about here. But, you know, the idea that you said to your mum what you want, it'll not look perfect when you buy her a fur coat and think that a fur coat's going, oh, that's really what I wanted. Great. I mean, in every way, it's wrong, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apart from for one person, which is Rod Stewart, which gives him a chance to express his fondness for his mum and also remind everybody of his enormous wealth by buying a fur coat. Yeah. And if you, if you take that thinking and, and, and add it to, you know, the, the, the general mindset of your Andy Leibovitches, you start to understand how it happens. Now, another thing I wanted to talk about, which actually relates to this, to this zone, <laughs> believe it or not. Loving the bottle of Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> a pint? You can get a pint of Charlie, a pint of Fred's Charlie, please. <laughs>
is the story about about Bob Dylan getting picked up by the police uh, while wandering around a you know anonymous section of I think Long Branch in New Jersey. Um, does something go ding, man? Something's going crazy. You take a picture. Fraser's tweeting. <laughs> I'm really glad we got one of those web cameras here that yeah. Joe Smith was talking about. And um, and it was picked up by a young police officer. Yep, he didn't recognise him. She didn't recognise him. Twenty four years old. Had to take him to the station and um, no, take him back to his hotel. Yeah, and verify that it was indeed Bob Dylan. So this this story, this little anecdote, throws up loads of questions, doesn't it? Which ones? Well, there was two things that struck me about it. One was that, um, obviously, because she was 24 years old, she didn't recognise him. Whereas they, they had a quote in one of the papers from the elder sergeant saying, it wouldn't have been his you know, identity out of Aston for it would have been an autograph. Yeah, yeah. Because Bob Dylan. And then secondly, it turns out that, apparently, he was trying to find Bruce Springsteen's childhood home. But, well, they've added, they've added in this detail. I don't think that's ver- verified, although we can talk about that in a moment. Because they, Dylan does do this, doesn't he? He does he do does. this. He, he did it with Neil Young, Young. he did it with John, John Lennon. Lennon's. Um, but but I, I'm going to defend him on the on the identity point, because Bob, a 24-year-old's idea of what Bob Dylan looks like is probably based on the cover of Blonde on Blonde. Yes. Uh, I, I've seen Bob Dylan... Uh, doesn't look like that anymore. Does he doesn't look <laughs> like that. And the other thing that uh, he tends to do in public is he wears, as you know, a giant hoodie Where's jacket the hoodie? and a pair of dark glasses. So what you're actually seeing is just, uh, in the dim distance inside a, 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 a giant hood, some dark glasses gleaming at you. Uh, there will be no sound emanating from this possible grunt. Um, uh, and that's, uh, what indication and is the, it? So he's not seeing the times they are a change. You <laughs> live, I think this is a perfectly good point. You, you live in leafy Chiswick, don't do. you? A nice little suburban street. Yeah. Now I imagine that you looked out the window one afternoon and, and there, shambling past, is a 69-year-old man, because yeah. I think that's what Bob Dylan is. Yeah? yeah. Is that right? Yeah, he's a bit younger than that, yeah. Okay. Late 60s. And he's wearing, because he's Bob Dylan, the hood at top, the pair of sunglasses. He's also wearing a strange kind of pair of... Pyjama uh, bottoms. Uh, Pyjama bottoms. Yeah, yeah. Or, or odd harem, harem pants <laughs> yeah, or something. You know what I mean? Because he's a rock star. Yeah. And my point is, if you take a rock star out and you stick them in an average suburban street, they look weird. Yeah. They look suspicious. And did they they stop him, therefore, because they thought he was acting suspiciously? Because of that combination. I think somebody had rung up. The 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 neighbours had rung, yeah. I want to say there's some that's my point. shambling <laughs> that's past. My point. If, if any rock legend walked down the average suburban road, the neighbours would ring the police. They'd say, there's somebody who looks odd. Doesn't belong here. Doesn't look as if they're going anywhere. Doesn't look as if they're commu- commuting out. Doesn't look as if they're going to work on a house. And he's also shitting up Bruce Springsteen's drainpipe to break through his bedroom window. <laughs> <laughs> that's wrong. That's actually wrong. Seeing where he wrote Born to Rock. pyjamas. Yeah, that's right. Didn't Dylan famously rock up and cry chain once? And wow. go to the wrong house. Isn't there a famous story? Oh, we've done that story about six times. Oh, we've done it. Okay, we've done it. But he also went to, I mean, he went to Andy Kershaw's um, um, ex-partner Juliet's. Where the banners. banners in, yeah. your, in your The fact they have a plaque above the table. Yeah, do they? That was their They have the oh, plaque above the table where Dylan sat. But I mean, that's where I've had a very nice brunch. Yeah, he was there for a long time. No one had any idea who he was. Of course they didn't because he didn't want them to. I mean, the most extraordinary thing about this story, I think, is that he not only went to John Lennon's old, where he was, I think, 
or his ball actually yeah, went to Wilton. Which is, but he also went on. He went on. He went on a little coast on yeah. a minibus yeah. or something. Probably called the Magical Mystery, a Magical History Tour, yeah, yeah. I'm imagine. I'm sure it is. And was taken around. Um, <laughs> if it, if it, is, it should be. Was taken around Liverpool in this bus. And you just try to imagine that coach load of merry uh, holiday makers, you know, with their cameras, do you know what I mean, singing their Beatles songs. At the back is just this sound. <laughs> hey. Looking like one of those bizarre creatures. Is it the Ewoks? You'd have to help me phrase. There's some strange creatures in the second uh, Star Wars movie, anyway. You can only see their eyes coming out of. <laughs> in the ground. Yeah, anyway. And he takes the buses, doesn't he? He was spotted in Belfast at a bus stop in yeah. 1992. Just yeah. so he takes public transport around and goes to visit. Well, I remember the... the we the, must be looking for stiff little oh, fingers. No, no. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Van. Maybe Van, actually. He would, <laughs> he would have gone to Van's house. Right. He would be looking for Van. So if you, I think if you're going to stand outside the house, uh, the, the childhood home of, of about ten major rock <laughs> yeah, rock eventually Bob will yeah. turn up. Elvis is, you know... Where is Watty from the Exploiter? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to camp out there. It may take months, it may take years. Eventually, though. But, but you know, see, I'm, I'd be fascinated by that. I'd, I'd, I love going to see oh, yes. the childhood homes I'm fascinated. of famous people. So so I can what understand have you learnt about them by going and looking at them? I went to see uh, Morrissey's when I lived in Manchester. Okay. And it was just that classic, kind of fairly nondescript English, sort of suburban home. Nothing special, not particularly kind of working class terrace, nothing grand. So is it in between? In between. In between working class and lower yeah. middle? Yeah. That's where. That's the, the rock star the, zone, that is. Yeah. And the guy in front of you in the, in the queue in the, with the anorak said, hey, this is where you wrote this charming man. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, See, so why is, let's give him the, the benefit of the doubt that he's, you know, he's, he is going around and looking at these places. Why is he doing it? I, well, I'd be, I'm fascinated in where anyone famous <coughs> grew up or the room in which they created you know, their, their finest works. I suppose he's the same. I mean, I, I wonder how you feel. Presumably people turn up at Bob Dylan's house. Yeah, well, Bob Dylan's house is always getting on, going on the market, isn't it? And, it uh, is. And being bought and sold it by is. Bob it's Dylan. It is. Yeah. I think it's because he's bored. I think he's, it's like the rock star equivalent of looking up old girlfriends on Friends Reunited. It's just what you do when, in your downtime. I suppose if you're on tour endlessly, as Dylan is, yeah. you wake up in Belfast or somewhere and you think, well, what am I going to do today? I've got the sign check at four o'clock. I'll go and try and find Ali McMorty's childhood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jake right. Burns' bedroom. Yeah. Also, he's got strange uh, hobbies, isn't he? I mean, he is absolutely uh, unfathomable human being, isn't he? I mean, he's just got something. There was a brilliant interview with Bill Flanagan. Um, yeah. Um, in, on the Dylan website. I read the whole of it. It's fantastic. And you can't believe how... It's very hard to tally that sometimes with the same guy who's on stage. This, uh, again, rather gnomic and completely unforthcoming individual who will go through entire sets never saying anything. But what he talked about and the degree of intellectual intensity that he talked about, it was, it was so thrilling, I thought. You know, his understanding of music and knowledge of literature and art. And, you know, he's, he's just got an enormous... Enormous intellect, uh, and also a, a, a series of, of quite peculiar uh, hobbies, spot welding being one of them. So the same guy goes spot to welding when he comes off tour, and this is absolutely established by everybody, including his sons, and said so. When they go home, you know this. He <laughs> welds. He has an old belt on. Well, well spot, I'm exaggerating. Spot welds. He welds. Uh, he has a welding equipment, and he yeah. makes. There's a oh, thread, no, no, there's a yeah. thread on the I'm website. He makes... <laughs> you know, he, he's got a load of... He's got a big old shed on one on that 
farm. He lives in the, one of the southern uh, states, and he's got a load of welding equipment, and he makes artworks. I mean, this is completely no, different. Fact, I don't think really he actually mends uh, the chassis. He doesn't pop round. Uh, but no, you know, if your back end's gone, <laughs> you know, you ring up with a voice, and he says, oh, I think I might need a help. What, man with a van? <laughs> yeah. So, for that differential to be wondering. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing about no. Dylan that strikes me is... Um, I don't really know anything about him. He is managed. He shows it. Oh, no. He shows it can be done if oh, you yeah. want. So he's reached whatever six, 68, 69 years old. I don't really, I don't really know if he's married. I don't know about children. Oh, I'm not entirely sure where he lives. I don't know. No, he's managed somehow to it's not really. Well, reveal anything, which ago, makes him all the more fascinating. I interviewed him years ago, and most of what he said kind of went over my head or whatever. But one thing he said that that still resounds for me now is he says I could just disappear into a crowd. He yeah. was clearly. He, he's very proud of that thing, but yeah. he, he can just disappear. Well, <laughs> and his attitude is that most people don't bother trying beyond a certain level of celebrity. He does, you know. Yeah. Of course, the other practical detail of him being stopped by the policeman is how would most people verify their identity while stopped by, when stopped by a policeman, particularly in America? Driving license, driving license, credit card, whatever. The speculation on the website is that did he not have any of this with Maybe him? Maybe he's like royalty; doesn't carry any of them. Well, that's pretty dangerous. Maybe somebody, somebody else carries them but for him. But it's quite unlikely that, that he does the thing. I mean, if he's on tour, someone looks after that. If you're on tour... Yeah, but he's gone <laughs> for a walk. He's gone for a walk. But, I mean, it's, it's possibly not a very long one. Well, and, I think uh, it was. You, you know, I mean, all you have to do is be on stage for 90 minutes a day, and otherwise someone's looking after you. Maybe somewhere deep down he does just think people will know I'm Bob Dylan. Uh, I remember John, John Baldy, the late John Baldy, who, who used to edit a, a wonderful uh, fanzine Baldy. called The Telegraph. Do you remember The Telegraph? Yeah, yeah. It was a Dylan fanzine. And uh, John was obviously completely obsessed with Dylan and went to see him once playing in Bournemouth. And uh, he was walking back from the venue, yeah, yeah. this is Baldy, and a coach went by, but obviously a tour bus, a very substantial tour bus went by. And suddenly the tour bus stopped and the doors opened at the front. And out came this familiar to us familiar shambling man again probably in the in the pyjama trousers the 200 dollar trainers and in a massive hood and starts walking alongside the bus and he realises the bus was, he simply said I want to walk and has been put off the bus and he's going to walk for it as he did for about two or three hundred yards and then the bus doors magically opened up like a spacecraft he gets back and on. absorbed and he went up and Baldy walked alongside him did he stop to walk to have, alongside Baldy? no he didn't no, no that would have been good no he didn't see John Baldy I think he probably wouldn't have gone off actually if he thought there was somebody there but John Baldy managed to slide up alongside him and asked him if he'd ever read the Telegraph. And D- Dylan said to him, yeah, I have, and it's pretty interesting. From which point, the Telegraph never appeared without the legend, pretty interesting, <laughs> Dash, <laughs> Bob Dylan. You've got to make the most of what you Baldy. get. I thought that was very, very So how did, he, how did he open the conversation? Did he say, excuse me, are you Bob Dylan? Or, uh, excuse me, Mr. Dylan? Or do you just... I imagine he would have said, I'd love the show and, uh, you know, to, to so nice to see you again and really enjoy I, I think he went in very heavily with the kind of the idea that uh, he knew a lot about him. And Bournemouth was good, but not as good as Southampton. Right. Of course, the way he played at Petersfield, that was terrific. And, Which is uh, the way Bob Dylan fell yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Because <laughs> there are only the same people just yeah. following him around. The Word. A magazine, a website, a podcast. A way of life. You listen to the Word podcast. Uh, I'm David Hepworth. Uh, joining the pod uh, this week, back from our holidays. Fraser Lurie, Barry Hi. McElhenney. Hi. Mark Allen. Barry, yes, where, where have you been, Barry? I've been away uh, in the south of Spain, the deep south of Spain, uh, and I left exactly one month ago today, and I drove from the People's Republic of Stoke, New England, all the way to uh, sort of driving over Lemons Territory. You know the book by yeah, Chris Stewart? Yeah, I do, really, yeah. So used to Genesis, Genesis Trumper, uh, Who lives in that area. So it's a, it's a fantastic little valley where I've been going for about ten years. Long drive. 
Wouldn't necessarily... How long does that take? Uh, well, you could do it in two days with one overnight stop, as I did, but I would recommend to listeners to do it in three days with two overnight stops. One, and this is with two teenage lads, is it? Two teenage boys in the back, uh, both of whom had the iPod clumped their head throughout, so they may as well not have been there. Occasionally a toll would come up and I would just shout, Toll! And they'd have to take the iPod off for a minute, get a bit grumpy about it. Really cross. Yeah, for God's sake, dear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pay. KC. I'm going to pay. Yeah. And, um, and uh, interesting for, um, for, for listening to the certain vintage, um, in the area where I was, was uh, none other than Dr. Robert, formerly of the Blue Monkeys. Formerly of the Blue Monkeys. But doesn't he live there? He lives there. So uh, that it's kind of still a street in Spain. Yeah, he still works. Is. Still works there. Uh, he wouldn't mind me saying he's put on a couple of pounds since you may remember him <laughs> and smile. That's <laughs> it. Haven't looks, we all? He looks statuesque. Haven't we all? Did surely, if you live around there, then the terrific uh, producer Andy of the Jonathan Ross show must live around there. Yeah, he's, of course. He's always uh, talking about John, uh, Dr. Robert. He's yeah, he made, the, he made, the, Roberts for he made the village in which he lives in briefly infamous. It was in the cover of the News of the World, amusingly, because at the time of the Saxgate scandal, yeah, yeah, yeah. Andy Davies, remember, allegedly had yeah. insulted some woman who lived in the village. That's right. It became a huge story. He was there. I also bumped into, as I did last year, Peter the Thick of at Capaldi. Um, so I was trying to get away from it all, obviously, for a month from this showbiz life. Oh. But what struck me when I was away was how hard it is to get away nowadays. Not just through bumping into people, but I took my laptop with me, sort of mentally thinking, just in case. And of course, the tiniest little cafe in this tiny little village in the Arsenal of Nowhere has got Wi-Fi broadband. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the temptation just to kind of log yeah, on every yeah, morning yeah. with your coffee, and, and therefore just essentially know as much as you would know when yeah. you're back home. Well, we, we were staying with a friend in, in Brittany, uh, and they've got, they've got broadband, and a, you know, a PC, and it being Brittany, of course, a couple of days, it pours down, because yeah. it always does in Brittany. And, and so I, you know, to look on the bright side, I, I, I fire up the computer, and we start watching Fraser on oh. YouTube, Okay. The rain is lashing against the window. See, We're all gathered round. Absolutely ideal. Well, this Perfect. is it. That's Perfect. my idea. Perfect. I can't imagine any more fun. That's precisely None my more fun. fun. I'm oh thinking I should stop apologising for this. I should stop Perfect. saying, never mind, the sun's going to shine in the minute. I'm going to go out the and just enjoy it. Because <laughs> this is just, it ticks every We're box. <laughs> absolutely all gathering round a small computer. Oh. Adoring Frasier. You know what I mean? Because... Yeah. Because you haven't got the normal comforts around uh, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everything's so you appreciate focused. it more. You really appreciate because without it. that, you'd be sitting there looking out the window, going, "This holiday is really starting to so take a turn for the world." So when I got back this time, there, more than any other year, there wasn't that sense of what have I missed? Because I haven't missed anything. You missed miss nothing. Whereas even just a couple of years ago, I mean, you would have to maybe dial up, and it would There's be more complicated. Whereas everything was yeah. just there. So the, the, one of the great joys of coming back from holiday is gone. Yeah. Which used to be catching up. Yeah, what's happened? Yeah. Who's died? You know, I, actually, you I've been know, away, I've I away for four days, and we did not, apart from watching the uh, Everton Arsenal uh, six one. Oh yes, <laughs> <laughs> triumph oh, well. if you if you'd have to say um, uh, catastrophe. I thought um, <laughs> that I had absolutely no um, media intercourse whatsoever. But that's because you chose point, not to. Yeah, there was, there was five of us, and we were just taking bicycles all over the Lake District, climbing big old mountains. And apart from the fact that Les Paul turned his toes up, yeah, I don't know anything at all. I came back none the wise. You haven't missed much. No, no. Oh, the Reaper's been busy, though. Reaper's had a bit of a field day, Reaper, yeah. He's always, sharp always, his side. Always does in August. <laughs> does he? Does he? Why yeah. is that? I don't know why, but I remember somebody saying because of the heat, the intense heat, but people always seem to die in August. 
I, I, you're now going to ask me to back this up, and I can't. <laughs> no, okay. With well, any statistical no, evidence. But if you wanted to check on so it, I'm been sure cycling there's some up proof. hills. I've been cycling up hills. I, I've been in the Lake District, and anyone who's been to the Lake District on, hol- Lake District on holiday, um, in, but even in August when you expect it to be its, uh, its sunniest, will know that in the Lake District, it absolutely wheezes with rain. Yes. All the time. Almost all the time. And I had Hence the lakes. Well, my little team and I go away every year. We went to Paris once for dinner, and we went all over Ireland, and we went to Exmoor and Dartmoor, and last year we went from the Newcastle, Newcastle to the Edinburgh Festival up the coast, you know, 250 miles. It's just a fantastic way. It's really good fun. But we've never actually done it in thrashing, blinding kind of horizontal rain. The, really? And it's a weird feeling when you get up in the morning and sitting in a little tea shop all pushing a cup of tea around in a cream horn. And no one's quite got the nerve to say, let's go. Because you're looking outside and it's just beating against the window. And it's a bit like that feeling when you're you're about to swim in the sea and you're standing on a a rock and you're thinking, that's going to hurt. But once I get in and I get you see, wet, Barry, it'll be Barry all right. and I are looking at you thinking, <laughs> we don't, we're not familiar with that sensation. No, no, no. It's it's whereas Mark Ellen is familiar with that sensation all the time. Oh, yeah, so no, He's always we, about to put his body But I, we've all bought, you see, very, very expensive uh, Gore Tex, uh, those high visibility cycling chairs. High vis. Of course, that's absolutely fantastic because you feel completely warm on the top. Obviously, you are squelchingly wet everywhere else. But you're actually warm on the top, and so what you're doing is, is cycling through this incredibly elemental uh, countryside and seeing it as if actually a part of it. It sounds terribly pretentious, but you actually, if you're in a car, you don't experience what the Lake District looks like in the pouring rain. It actually looks fantastically beautiful. But the key point, though, which I must make, is we did uh, one day we did 54 miles. I know 54 miles is not very many. On but the boat. Here's the ascent, right? At the end of it, we got back. I was genuinely tired. We went to the pub, and I, I, you know, I had to have an extra pint. Steady the old nerves. And I said, just I'm a bit tired. I said, well, everyone admitted they were a bit tired. So we went to the, the shop the next day, the cycle shop, who had given us this route. Oh, bashed out the computer and said, can you calculate exactly how many feet we climbed? He said, oh, no, no problem. Within two minutes, because I prints out the thing, it's 7,860 feet, right? which is a mile and a half. So we had climbed a mile and a half ascent. Quite apart from the 54 miles. That's not the point. And the howling headwind and, and the rain. I'm, I'm saying this, Listers, because no, I want, I want some kind of respect. I'm impressed. I, I couldn't get any change out of I'm my in, sons and my wife when I ran I'm up. I'm impressed every year when Mark Ellen does the London to Brighton yes, cycle run. run, which involves... Three hours 47 this year, I've listeners. never gone further than half an hour 56 on the bike. 56 miles, isn't but it? But it, it involves climbing... Ditchling, Ditchling Beacon. Beacon. Yeah. yeah. Now you're aware of Ditchling Beacon? Have you been up there? Yeah, yeah. It's got it's at the a... beginning of the Downs, and it's a, I can barely get up there in a car. Now, you, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> cycle. Yeah, you're not allowed up to get there. off. And you don't get off. No, you're not allowed to get off. See, that's one of the great things is you're, you're passing the familiar clip-clop sound of people who've got these very expensive bikes where, where their feet actually clip into their pedals, and they have paid £3,000 for a bike, and probably £3,000 for their kit. And the feeling when you sail past, in my case, wearing my Charlie Hawtrey regulation, carrying up the kind of shorts. <laughs> Wicker basket on the front. That's right. Wicker basket with a cat in it. You know, that, that and Her some sandwiches, on, right? uh, <laughs> obviously lashings of ginger Operate. ale. And, yeah, and, some, and a piece of ham. You know, the that, cleaner's ladder. The cleaner's, cleaner's ladder and a bucket, you know, whistling. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and a flat cap and a jaunty tilt. It, the feeling that when you go, when you pass these guys and you're still riding is actually pathetically adolescently smug and wonderful. Well, I drove back and stopped off in Paris, and the highlight of this was walking down the Rue de Rivoli in the centre of Paris, uh, go popping into a newsagent's and seeing Robert Wyatt staring at there me from the new issue of Word. I know, there that's fantastic. A mere 10 euros 50. Fantastic. And, and a bargain for right. anybody listening, listening in Paris. Yes, yeah, so cheaper, it's there. It's, it's there, within days in Paris. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, uh, what else have we got to cover? Have you followed this thing about George Pelicanos, who's yeah. one of the writers <coughs> of The Wire, one of the script writers of The Wire, saying in an interview that he thinks people watching The Wire with subtitles is a disgrace, because well, it's supposed to be a demanding piece of art. Well, I, sort of, I do sympathise with him, and I watched every episode of all five series on a box set on a, on a laptop, so with headphones in. Yeah. So in a way, I didn't feel the need for subtitles, because I had the headphones in turned up Mac to the max. If you're watching it on TV, I'd struggle without subtitles. So I sort of, I understand why people use it, but I do understand its point. I think it's much better just to have it in the raw, in your ear. What about you, Fraser? Do you I, watch I, it with... I watched it on a TV without subtitles. Really? I, it, the fact that I didn't understand everything didn't matter. It was, uh, it was good that it challenged me in that way, I think. Uh, I, I watched subtitles all the way through. Right, I just couldn't Did bear... You, from... Yeah, Episode right from one. the beginning. I, I was sort of the first one. I thought I'm not going to be able to understand this. I didn't expect to understand everything, so it kind no, of but didn't I wanted matter. to follow the plot. I was intrigued because it was hinting at, you know, the, the, the thing that I found fascinating about the wire was was all the sort of historical kind of social details of the world that it threw light on. You know what I mean? I felt I wanted to know about yeah. that, like I would if I read about it, and I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't. Uh, if I hadn't followed the subtitle. There was a comment isn't from... It like, isn't it like a foreign language where, where I don't know, because as you know, I've, I've still not ever watched an episode of The Wire, but if you... <laughs> the man <laughs> and who's never watched a little bit well, There's probably loads of them, to yeah, be yeah. fair. The way those things work nowadays, there'll be loads of people who haven't watched it, because that, like, I've never watched to. 24. I'm you going know, to. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to do it. It's a big but commitment. It is. But isn't it like a, a, you know, a foreign language where you pick up the cadence of their speech and presumably eventually you're able to talk fluent fluent Baltimore. I mean, you know, surely you can turn the subtitles off and think, oh, if you'd started with that. But there's a huge amount of jargon because you're not just being introduced, you know, it's not just, you know, African-American, it's not just Baltimore, it's the drug Drug trade trade, in those places. And and they spare you none of the slang. They don't, you know, it's it's all shortcuts, it's all, you know, that's, this is the way people talk. But Dave, you know what a bottle of Charlie is, don't you? Sorry? You know what a bottle of It's way way beyond that. It's deep, deep stuff. (laughs) I read that interview with uh, McNeil Dominic West, who plays Jimmy McNulty, who said his mother try, keeps trying to watch yes, it and gives up after ten minutes. Yeah. The first episode, she's seen the first ten minutes about seven times because she just can't work out what they're saying. Yeah, and he's easier to, to hear than most people because he's obviously a yeah. British actor doing that. No, I just, I thought, frankly, George Pelicanus, this is a bit bloody rich. Telling the British that they should, you know, the British who, of all nations in the world, are the most accepting of... American rap music, yeah. country music, all those things. We don't require glossaries of terms. Whereas if it goes the other way, they, like you know, they have to recut, you know, mm. only fools and horses with or the, subtitles. Or they have to or put what? subtitles on train spotting and films like they that. Anything Scottish. On. You know, we, generally speaking, we... we they, mm. they put subtitles on the commitments, didn't they, as well? Did they? Because the Irish <laughs> films. Yeah. So, you know, we, we have a go at most things, don't we? We have and a crack at it. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and we don't winch, but anyway. So Perhaps it should have been dubbed with British accents. Say again? Perhaps the wire should have been dubbed with British accents. It's time for the re-up, chaps. <laughs> <laughs> I must go and spend a couple of How much of is that bottle of Charlie? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to see how many times I get bottle of Charlie. Let's go stand in the corner, <laughs> sell some blue top. <laughs> They could redo it in Belfast, actually. That would be funny. The wire in Belfast. Yeah. Try for the real. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we man. Don't you so, like Astral Weeks? <laughs> What's that meant to be about? <laughs> no, wait, no, so it's not really very good, is it? 
that's terrible. From Wicklow, He's Welsh. From Wicklow or something like that. Sorry. That's the week's time. Do you George Harrison. That's the... Do you George Harrison. That's the only excellent one I do, actually. That and Peel. So has anything anybody's learned in the last few weeks that they'd like to share with the massive? Anything to pass on? I read Anthony Beaver's D-Day. Which oh, is don't astonishing. Spoil it. What, don't spoil I won't spoil it. <laughs> quite. Don't ruin the yeah, ending. Uh, <laughs> it is astonishing, and uh, the astonishing detail, which I'll just pass on because this won't spoil anything. It tells you that the uh, about the amazing buoyancy of the vice trade is that on the night of D-Day, a brothel was functioning inside a disused landing craft. On the D-Day beaches. Excellent. On the beach. Excellent. And you okay. can buy bottles of Charlie. <laughs> I, um, I read, uh, the best book I read on holiday was the Mark Everett book. The guy from Eels. Oh, right, okay. Mr. Uh, e. Mr. E, which is just fantastic, which is essentially his autobiography, okay. sort of memoirs of his extraordinary life. Oh, family life. And fa- fa- Andrew fa- Harrison's written f- about that. Yeah. Very it's fantastic. I mean, the family life, which most people know about, of course, is the sister <coughs> who killed herself, the father he found dead, the mother who dies. But what I didn't know until I read the book was that his cousin was a, a, an air hostess on the flight that went into the Pentagon. And with her husband, and couples are never normally allowed to fly together on any airline, and they'd asked for special permission because they were both off and going off the weekend. But see, he just in every sort of chapter, there's just sort of something incredible happens. But she obviously, you know, to some extent, turns into. Was this this, was this a kind of energising and optimistic read? I mean, what did you get out of it? I thought it was fantastic. Well, it's an incredible, it's an incredible life because of all these things that happened to him. Um, but just, you know, and also, I mean, I'm not a huge Eagles fan, but there's obviously the element of him sort of making it in the music industry yeah, and what yeah. happens. Um, but that's no, just an extraordinary life, well told. Uh, have you learned anything, Fraser, in the last couple of weeks? I've learned that I'm actually descended from uh, farmers in County Wicklow. And that uh, I have a, uh, have you been on Who Do You Think You Are? I missed that it's, one. it's that kind of thing that's been prompted me to do a little bit of re- research. And I've got an ancestor called Lydia Lemon. Oh, I've got all, all around. You do look like you've got a bit of Irish in your face, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Middle name? Monaghan. <laughs> you two are brothers, effectively. Yeah, you've got that. You've got so a quick little farmer look about you. Do you feel they're going to go back and, and visit your, your, your The old sod? Now? No, I don't think so. You and Dylan could go around looking <laughs> for, yeah. you know, Phil Linert's birthplace <laughs> or where he wrote the immortal Sarah. Didn't they both write a song called Sarah? They, they did. Yeah, there's good. a little connection yeah. about that. Have you learned anything, Mark? I can't, Jared. I don't think I have. No, I'm sorry. I've not learned absolutely nothing in life. Stumbling through, blind. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk.